3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize the unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to the 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast with me, Malika, Priya, and our newest edition, Inez. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. How are you going, Priya? Priya is in the other studio this morning, so it's a bit different. Yeah, I mean, I'll probably be back in, uh, in Studio One in just a moment, but you know how it is with Thursday Breakfast. We're always troubleshooting. We're always trying to figure stuff out. So right now I'm like, how do I convert this 32-bit to 16-bit? You know, it's, it's, you know it, it's all happening here. Very, very interesting stuff. Very interesting morning. <laughs> um, maybe we can just jump into a bit of a rundown for what to expect from today's show. Yeah, for sure. I can kick it off. Go for it. So on uh, Monday's episode of Women on the Line, Iris interviewed Dylan O'Hara from Victoria's peer sex worker organization, Vixen Collective, on the benefits of full decriminalization of sex work and how the Sex Work Decriminalization Bill 2021, which is currently uh, before the Victorian Parliament leaves some sex workers behind. And um, just letting you know that you can listen back to that whole episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And we'll let you know a bit more about how to support the push for amendments when we play that interview. We will then be speaking with Shabnam from Action for Afghanistan on the continued crisis in Afghanistan and the impacts on the Afghan community here in so-called Australia. And then after that, we're going to be replaying another interview. And this is one that I conducted with Samantha Floriani, who's the program lead at Digital Rights Watch on the 14th of October, about the basic online safety expectations, which fall under the Online Safety Act. And we're replaying this uh, interview because a public consultation on these draft expectations closes this Friday, the 12th of November. And you can have your say by heading to infrastructure.gov.au and looking up public consultation on the draft. And there's a lot of great information on Digital Rights Watch's website as well. So... You know, you can have a look at that while you're listening to the interview even. So you can head to digitalrightswatch.org.au. But, yeah, tune in for that really important interview with Samantha Floriani. And then we'll be speaking with artist and writer Matt Chun, um, who will be joining us to speak about his new self-published picture book, Do You Ever Wonder? 
and processes and politics of creating against colonization in the literary sphere in so-called Australia. Yeah, it's so, oh my gosh, I can't emphasize how amazing this book is. And I'm not really used to doing interviews about, um, you know, about books with images. It's more like, you know, text only, but... Matt's artwork is incredible. You might have seen it um, in his collaborative work with Amy McGuire, um, who's a Dharambal and South Sea Islander woman and incredible journalist, um, Daybreak, which is just a beautiful um, book aimed at young people about the 26th of January. But yeah, you have to check out his work. It's incredible. I'm really excited to check it out too, Priya. Thanks for sharing that one. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we have just hit 7.06 this morning. Um, we're just going to jump right into our headlines this morning. Um, in headlines this week, big businesses' treatment of First Nations people will be examined by a parliamentary inquiry announced this week. Inexcusable acts over recent years that have prompted the inquiry include the destruction of the Jukin Gorge by Rio Tinto, Woolworth's proposal to build a liquor warehouse near dry communities and Telstra's exploitation of First Nations customers. Communities have consistently bore the brunt of raising the alarm and fighting for reparations in these cases. The committee has been ordered to report back to Parliament by March next year, but the process could prove obsolete if Parliament is dissolved for an election before the findings are handed down. In COVID-19 vaccination news, as the federal government celebrates a milestone of 80% vaccinated nationally, vaccination campaigns continue to fall short for First Nations people who are significantly overpresented in case numbers. Case numbers are increasing in some communities amid concerns that current vaccination rates will not be high enough to withstand further outbreaks. First Nations people have been affected by COVID-19 at twice the rate than others in the country. Despite this, top-down decision-making continues to disregard simple solutions presented by community health workers and First Nations health organisations. 
such as more communication in community languages and needs mapping for surge campaigns that involve community workers. After months of inaction on Afghanistan from the Morrison government, a Senate inquiry has heard the call for an immediate increase in refugee intake to at least 20,000 people and for permanent protections to be put in place for refugees. As community advocacy continues to be ignored, a group of human rights and legal organisations have united this week to call for more urgent action from the government to help the people of Afghanistan, who are facing mass displacement and extreme poverty under Taliban rule. More than 130,000 people from Afghanistan have applied for protection in Australia. And finally, digital rights experts are speaking out against the Morrison government's plan to force social media users to identify themselves. This week, Twitter joined the ranks of digital rights and freedom of expression advocates who say the proposed move would breach human rights and potentially harm whistleblowing practices and international relations. And those are the main headlines, unless you had something to add, Priya. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I just wanted to add the the appalling fact that there have been more deaths in custody this week. So um, just a listen, uh, sorry for listeners um, who are First Nations, this um, this part of the conversation is going to be talking about uh, death of Aboriginal uh, people in custody. Um, and yeah, it's just been... Absolutely appalling. There was a death in custody at the Shortland Correctional Centre, and that uh, that's in Cessnock, so New South Wales, a 26-year-old Aboriginal man, and that was reported um, that was reported on Sunday. And there was also uh, the death in custody of an Aboriginal man um, in uh, this is also in New South Wales, in northwestern Sydney, um, in his home. Um, with a, a police incident, um, it's just you know, it's just it's just awful that this continues to go on. You know, we we rose up as a country uh, for Black Lives Matter last year, and yet um, you know, there's been no there's been no government action uh, based on what families of people who've died in custody have been asking for. Um, and I also wanted to draw people's attention to the fact that today in New South Wales, outside New South Wales Parliament House, there will be a rally calling for justice for Mark Mason Sr. And this is basically um, a rally for an Aboriginal man who, who lost his life in custody in Coloranabri in 2011. And his family is calling for justice. So that's at 11 a.m. outside New South Wales Parliament House. I know that listeners are mainly going to be in Victoria, but I really encourage you to keep an eye on social media and to keep boosting the story of Mark Mason Sr. and calls for justice. And there's an amazing uh, piece by Amy McGuire on her Substack presence uh, called Shattered Glass, which really covers that in a in a beautiful and caring way thanks for sharing that Priya you're right it is it is appalling the lack of inaction especially over the last year and just the continued harm that's being caused to these communities absolutely so I think we might head into our first uh, our first interview for today um, so we're going to be replaying an interview that Iris did for Monday's episode of Women on the Line. And Iris interviewed Dylan O'Hara from Victoria's peer sex worker organization, Vixen Collective, on the benefits of full decriminalization of sex work and how the Sex Work Decriminalization Bill 2021, which is currently before the Victorian Parliament, leaves some sex workers behind. 
And you can find out more about how to push for amendments to the bill by visiting the No Sex Worker Left Behind campaign on Vixen Collective. But for now, let's hear that interview. So um, I'm a spokesperson for uh, for Vixen Collective, which is, as you said, Victoria's peer-only sex worker organisation. So we're the credentialed member organisation of Scarlet Alliance, a national peak body for sex worker organisations in Australia. Um, and I've been involved in Vixen Collective for a, a pretty long time now. Um, everybody involved in Vixen is a current or former sex worker. We're 100% by and for sex workers. To set the scene for listeners about the push for full decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria, could you first outline the current licensing system and in particular how it creates yeah, two tiers of sex workers, perpetuates harm and discrimination and stigma against sex workers? Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So in, in Victoria at the moment, um, we have a regulatory model called licensing, uh, which is also the model in Queensland. Um, and as you say, what licensing does is it essentially splits, it splits the sex industry and it splits our community in two. So it creates a situation where um, a small number of sex workers and businesses um, are able to comply with uh, really onerous um, and dangerous restrictions that are, you know, are detrimental to our health and safety as sex workers. Um, and, uh, you know, probably much larger number of, of, of sex workers are forced to work outside of that framework um, because we're not able to comply uh, with those, with, with the laws, uh, which means that we are more likely to be brought into contact with police um, and are, you know, essentially criminalised. And some parts of the community are particularly criminalised in a really overt way at the moment. So um, street-based sex work is explicitly criminalised under the licensing system. But I think something that it's really important for, for people listening to understand, because I think there's sometimes a bit of a mis- misconception about this, is that even, um, even sex workers who are working within the laws at the moment or those, you know, attempting to work within the laws, we're still really negatively, uh, negatively impacted by them. So it's, it's a real kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation where we're forced to make choices about our work, about our, you know, about our work and about our lives that are based on, um, you know, trying to, trying to fit into discriminatory and harmful laws rather than based on, you know, choices about, uh, you know, choices about what's best for our, for our, for our health and safety. Yeah, for sure. And there's a number of government agencies that surveil and control sex workers. Yeah, surveillance is a really big part of licensing as a model. So um, I think some good examples of that are the, the approach to registration at the moment. So for private sex workers or sometimes people say independent sex workers, um, there's a there's a legal requirement to uh, register with the BLA, the Business Licensing Authority, um, as a sex worker. Uh, and what you have to do when you do that is provide a huge amount of personal information, um, including photo identification um, and, and your address and all of those things, um, as well as your, you know, associated work, you know, work identities and all of that. And you can never remove that information. So even if you, um, even, you know, if or when you stop doing sex work, uh, you can deactivate that, but it's, it's maintained as a historical record. So, you know, it's, it's for life. So it's permanent registration of sex workers. And it's not a publicly available record, but it is, you know, there are a number of, of bodies and 
um, authorised officers or officials who can access it. So, uh, yeah, it's really a huge problem, and it is based on surveillance. It serves no purpose at all. I think another good example of surveillance um, is uh, the approach to um, the approach that licensing takes to sex worker um, sexual health. So in Victoria, sex workers were singled out in a way that you know no, no one else is in terms of our sexual health. So there's requirements around mandatory testing and things like that, which again, it's not based on evidence um, and it, it doesn't serve any purpose except to surveil and to to, to further stigmatise us. Um, you know, there's a really uh, overwhelming um, body of evidence, um, both, you know, within Australia and elsewhere um, about the, uh, you know, the positive, the, the positive health benefits of decriminalisation for sex workers um, and, you know, as opposed to the current approach. So I think it's also really important for people to understand that a lot of the ideas um, or anxieties that people might have um, you know, or or assumptions that people make about sex workers and our sexual health and our you know and our work in general, those are based in you know those are based in in stigmatizing stereotypes that are actually produced and exacerbated by the current laws. So the concept that you know sex workers are that we're you know vectors of disease essentially, and it's just not based in evidence. You know, sex workers in Australia have you know have rates of um, STIs, for example, that are uh, actually the same or lower than the general population. Um, sex workers are, you know, we're, we're um, really strong in, in peer-led health promotion. So there's, there's simply not a need for, for the laws that exist at the moment. Um, and, you know, that's just one, one facet of the licensing system that is a problem. But I think the important takeaway is that the, uh, yeah, the, the entire licensing system is a problem. So it, it's, yeah, all of the laws need to go. Before we go on to the current bill and it's, what it does and its flaws, um, would you first like to touch on some of the work like that's gone into even getting this on the agenda? If, if you don't mind, I might just say just a little bit more about, about what decriminalisation is, if that's okay. Because I think that, again, you know, again this is an area where um, sometimes there are misperceptions um, about what it means. So... Decriminalisation means the removal of criminal and, and civil laws that are sex work specific. It means that sex work is regulated. Um, it, it, decriminalisation is a whole of government approach to regulating the sex industry using existing, you know, laws and standard business laws um, and other relevant laws that are uh, and regulations that apply to other kinds of work as well. And, and really importantly, um, when you have decriminalisation the police don't have a role as regulators of the industry. And that's really, really crucial because that's the situation at the moment in Victoria is that in all parts of, in all parts of the industry, so um, within the licensed, um, you know, licensed or legally compliant part of the industry, but also outside of that, the police are the, are the, are the key regulators and enforcers really. So decriminalisation removes that. Um, and, Again, there's, a, there's a, a really a wealth of evidence to support um, the, the benefits of decriminalisation for sex workers. It's the best practice evidence-based approach to regulating sex work um, that best supports our health and safety and our rights. It's been, you know, sex workers have been organising, advocating, lobbying, um, campaigning for decriminalisation in Victoria for 
a very, very, very long time um, for decades. The Victim Collective has been campaigning, we've been leading the campaigns for decrim in Victoria uh, for, uh, for a number of years now. And there's been you know, many, many different pieces of work that have gone into that. Um, I think there's work that's more publicly visible. Um, Victorian sex workers are, you know, we're, we, we get out there. I think that um, people, a lot of people listening, some people listening, you know, may have seen some of the uh, various, um, you know, actions and kind of visible protests that workers have done over the years to, um, I guess, push back against anti-sex work. Um, anti-sex work sentiment and organising in Victoria, and that's part of that's part of decrim organising too. In terms of some of the um, work that's been focused on getting to where we are now in terms of the bill, um, I think one thing I would highlight is um, the uh, the the work that went towards getting decrim on the Labour Party platform in Victoria. So um, that happened in May 2018 and that was that was off the back of many many years of work um to that point and that was a that was obviously a really crucial a crucial thing to have happen um and then of course you know of course the work continued after that so the, the Andrews government has a bill to partially decriminalize sex work now before parliament um but it's not full decriminalization would you like to outline the campaign around no sex worker being left behind yeah, so we're really excited by the government's commitment to the decriminalisation of sex work. Um, it's fantastic um, and really positive that the government is taking this step and has listened to sex workers. Um, you know, over the over the course of the of of the you know um, this year and also over the course of the review in 2020, um, and we do support the decrim bill um, and we we want it to pass. Uh, there are many positives within it. But it's really important to us that the benefits of decriminalisation are extended to all sex workers, to all parts of our community. And so for that to happen, the bill does need to be strengthened in a few areas to, as you say, ensure that no sex workers are left behind. So um, one of the issues is that the bill retains the criminalisation, some criminalisation of street-based sex work. So there will still be, um, there would still be criminal offences um, connected to street-based uh, street sex work. Um, and so that would mean that police would still retain um, a regulatory role. And uh, I, I think really the issue here, I guess, is that, you know, this process was started, uh, as I said, because the government um, the government did listen to sex workers um, and made this fantastic commitment and recognised that criminalisation is deeply harmful. Um, and, uh, you know, and also that decriminalisation is the best practice evidence-based model for regulating the sex industry and for um, supporting sex worker health and safety. So the issue is that the bill retains criminalisation of, of part of the sex worker community, which does undermine decriminalisation. So full decriminalisation of all forms of sex work is, is what we're calling for. Um, so... It's really vital that that extends to all sex workers, and you know, there's there's a couple of other other areas as well that um, uh, we feel need to be improved, and that you know, and that sex workers um, in the community um, are are calling for for uh, those areas to be strengthened. So um, I mentioned the uh, 
uh, sex worker registration um, requirements earlier. So um, the bill would retain um, those those records um, as a historical as a historical record, um, and there's really there's really no need for that to happen. How can listeners support the campaign for Decrim to pass in a strengthened bill? What sex workers in Victoria are asking um, allies um, and our community to do is to get head to um, head to vixencollective.org/campaigns. Um, and what we're asking people to do is to let their uh, local Labor or um, Crossbench MP know that um, they should support Decrim, that they should support the bill, and that they should support it with the with the amendments that sex workers are calling for. So um, you can also uh, tweet at your MP. Um, you can email them. It's really important that, uh, I guess it's just really important that people hear that decrim is essential and that it's essential that it's extended to all sex workers and that no sex worker is left behind. Thanks. Thanks, Dylan, so much for joining me on Community Radio. Thank you. And that was an interview from Monday's episode of Women on the Line, where Iris interviewed Dylan O'Hara from Victoria's peer sex worker organization, Vixen Collective, on the benefits of full decriminalization of sex work and how the Sex Work Decriminalization Bill 2021, which is currently before the Victorian Parliament, leaves some sex workers behind. And you can listen back to that whole episode, which includes more context um, about decriminalization and also sex worker organizing at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And you can find out how to support the push for amendments to the bill, again, by visiting the No Sex Worker Left Behind campaign on vixencollective.org, which has a pretty comprehensive list of useful things you can do to support those amendments. And now... Uh, we're going to go to a track. So this is the new one from Camp Cope. This is Blue, and you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Phone in my hand, still checking if you cold, I'm double texting. Now I've never been cool, and I'll burn that bridge when I yeah, I'm on fire.
You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and it has just hit 7.29 this morning. Um, we just heard a wonderful song, new track from Camp Cove, and we're now going to be um, speaking with Shabnam from Action for Afghanistan on the continued crisis in Afghanistan and the impacts on the Afghan community here in so-called Australia. Good morning, Shabnam. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, really excited to have you here. Um, I guess for listeners who might be new, could you please share a bit about what Af- um, Action for Afghanistan does? Yeah, sure. So Action for Afghanistan is a campaign um, that uh, was put together or initiated by a group, a loose collective of um, the Afghan diaspora in Australia. Um, since uh, at, during the fall of Kabul uh, in early August. Um, so it's been about three months that we've been working on this campaign and since then it's taken some shape um, and the group that's leading it is now called the Afghanistan Australian Advocacy Network, which is made up of people from diverse ethnic and religious groups who form the collective Afghanistan Australian community. Um, so we're, you know, we come from different walks of life, different um, areas with different backgrounds. Um, we're academics, lawyers, health workers, uh, community workers, um, educators, mothers, fathers, brothers, mm. sisters, um, all coming together to, to raise awareness for what's happening in Afghanistan and also call on the Australian government to be taking more action um, given our direct involvement in Afghanistan and um, contribution to the crisis that's happening there right now because, um, you know, those of us here advocating, we've come as uh, refugees or migrants or children of um, refugees and uh, we've found safety in Australia um, and we're making positive contributions to yeah. Australia and we want to see uh, the same safety extended to our community at the moment. Yeah, and um, this really touches on our headlines from this morning as well, but the Morrison government has yet to offer an increase in humanitarian places for people from Afghanistan to seek safety in Australia. Instead of following the lead of countries like Canada, who are providing 40,000 places, the Australian government is only providing 3,000 places as part of an existing intake already cut from previous years. Mm-hmm. Given that Australia has supported 20 years of intervention in Afghanistan, what has been the Afghan diaspora in Australia's response to this inaction, what has been the impact on the community? Um, so as an Afghan-Australian myself, personally, I've felt quite disappointed and at times frustrated at the lack of leadership that our government is um, or is not <laughs> providing at the moment. Um, you know, it's been three months since uh, 
almost three months since the evacuations have ended and, um, you know, there's been an opportunity for Australia, a country like Australia, to step up at a world stage and show compassion and show, how, show others how it's done. But we haven't really seen that. Um, and as you said, there's 3,000 additional, um, sorry, they're not additional, the 3,000 visas come from our already reduced humanitarian program. So if we, these technically there has been no additional visas, humanitarian places for people from Afghanistan at the moment. Australia has had a very deep involvement in Afghanistan. Australia was one of the first countries to join the US-led intervention in 2001 that removed the Taliban um, uh, 20 years ago and made promises to the um, to the people of Afghanistan, promises of peace, democracy and freedom. Um, and now 20 years later when all of that has um, accumulated to nothing, uh, uh, Australia is shaking responsibility. It's not, um, you know, it's, it's at the very uh, least, it's a moral obligation um, for um, Australia to be doing something, um, to be doing so much more than it's already doing. Um, so the commitment to 3,000 comes from our government um, with the, uh, you know, with the talk of the fact that it's a, um, a floor, not a ceiling, but then that was also two and a half months ago, and since then we haven't heard anything else. There's mm. been no further commitments um, to bringing people to safety. Um, a couple of weeks ago at the Senate inquiry into Australia's engagement in Afghanistan, we heard that over 130,000 people have applied to for a humanitarian visa in to Australia, Um that you know that shows the great need for protection and safety. Um, that's about hundred thousand people from Afghanistan with direct links to Australia. Yeah, and, um, majority, a vast majority of those are going to go. Um, they're not. They're going to be disappointed. They're not going to have a positive answer from the Australian government. So it's been. It's been extremely disappointing. Um, aside from the fact that it's been a very distressing time for the Afghan diaspora, not just in Australia, across the world, um, as well as the, the people inside Afghanistan, the 36 million who are now forced to live under a, a Taliban regime um, that's been imposed on them. Yeah, the impacts of these this lack of action is just compounding, like it's impacting community here, community across the world, let alone in Afghanistan itself. And I guess the kind of support needed for this, like for people that do come, end up coming to Australia is multifaceted. Like the support extends beyond creating space places or creating increased intake. What would be the needs, um, of that community and services are seeing from recent intakes into Australia? With the, with the recent arrivals from Afghanistan, I think it's important to remember that, um, there is, you know, in general, there is this, typical refugee narrative that we hear, um, I do want to put a disclaimer and say there is no um, one typical refugee experience or yeah. journey, right? Every every experience, every story is different. Even though people are going through the same crisis, everyone experiences it differently. Um, the, the, but having said that, those who are arriving right now, um, you know, they, they're people who have found themselves to be refugees and their life uprooted within a matter of a week or two. Um, you know, they were, they were, um, working with international NGOs, they were working with allied forces or the Afghan government. Um, you know, some are 
very high uh, profile officials from the Afghan government or, you know, they, they're all very highly qualified and um, they've just found themselves to be refugees and starting from scratch in a new country. And all of this is happening during a pandemic. You know, they had issues arriving um those who managed to get out of Afghanistan and arriving in a country like Australia, having to go through um, the, the quarantine, um, mandatory quarantine, and then um, being placed in temporary accommodations because our settlement services are inundated at the moment. Mm. Because of the pandemic last year and this year, a lot of our settlement um, agencies had downsides, um, so they're, they're struggling uh, to to, uh, you know, uh, meet the demand that's been placed on them right now with the influx of arrivals. Yes. Australia was able to evacuate around 4,000 people from Afghanistan during the emergency evacuations. Um, Not all of them were refugees, obviously. Some were Australian citizens and permanent visa holders. Um, But the majority who were refugees, um, you know, most are still in temporary accommodation because our um, settlement agencies are finding it quite hard to um, to, to support them, uh, mm. given the compounding impacts from COVID-19 and our borders being shut for almost 18 months. And, you know, just, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of strain on the system at the moment. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And I guess also, um, as a representative action, um, action for Afghanistan, what have been the key demands outlined by your mm. community? Um, so our asks have been quite clear and, um, you know, ask for, uh, ask for the bare minimum at the moment from the Australian government. Um, number one, as we've talked about, is obviously committing to an additional humanitarian intake of at least 20,000 uh, people from Afghanistan, prioritising some of the most vulnerable and persecuted people. Like, you know, like girls, women, um, we're hearing in Incredible, incredibly distressing reports of um, violence against uh, women and, and, you know, gross violations of human rights against women being committed to um, in in Afghanistan. So prioritising those who are most at risk, like girls and women, but also ethnic minorities like the Hazara people, who have um, historically been persecuted and tar- targeted by the Taliban. Um, so there's the call for uh, an additional. 20,000 humanitarian intake. Um, there is call for, uh, we're calling for uh, permanent protection for those, uh, for refugees from Afghanistan who've been living in Australia for nearly a decade under temporary protection visas who now have no prospects of going home. They haven't been able to start a life here because their visas don't allow them to. Um, and right now it's almost unethical to not. Um, let them get on with their lives and, you know, give them the certainty about their future. Um, So we're calling for permanent protection for those on temporary visas. Um, We're um, calling for uh, prioritising of family reunification applications. Um, There are thousands of people who, because of a government um, decision or a directive, cannot uh, bring their families from Afghanistan to Australia. we're asking for that and we're asking for um, the ban on resettlement of refugees from Indonesia to be lifted. So since 2015, re- uh, refugees who are in Indonesia, majority of whom are from Afghanistan, mm. have been barred um, from coming to Australia and resettling here. 
mm. um, and now they're, they're essentially left stranded um, because they can't go back to Afghanistan as well. And um, most have been living in Indonesia in incredibly uh, difficult situation, almost destitute, um, wanting to come to Australia, so asking for that ban to be lifted. Um, and, you know, we're not asking for a lot here. Not at all. It is the bare minimum if you think of the, the magnitude of Australia's involvement in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, um, of the, the promises that um, the Australian government has made, um, but also the history that we have of extending a welcoming and a helping hand in times of crisis. Like, you know, the Fraser government during the Vietnam conflict um, gave refuge to nearly 70,000 people. Um, and more recently, the Tony Abbott government um, with the Syrian conflict, um, you know, provided 12,000 additional humanitarian visas to people uh, fleeing the conflict. And that's, you know, without having any direct involvement in those conflicts, that mm. was just, you know, a humanitarian obligation that the Australian government felt and took those actions. And yeah. um, as you mentioned earlier, during this crisis, countries like Canada have stepped up you know, initially they had announced 20,000 straight away um, humanitarian places and then since then doubled their target to 40,000 because of the um, demands from the community in Canada. Community, Canadian community came together and advocated to the government saying that, you know, we can take on some of that responsibility. We can look after um, refugees from Afghanistan, just, you know, bring them here Um in contrast, you know, Australian uh, community has done exactly the same. There's been overwhelming support um, for more action for Afghanistan by the Australian government um, in the community, but we haven't seen that leadership um, uh, through our uh, by our leaders, or you know, that response to the overwhelming or outpouring of support. Um, in the community as well. It's been, it's been disappointing and we're now coming up to three months since the uh, fall of Kabul and the official um, takeover of Taliban in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really heavy. I can't even imagine what it's like sitting with that for more than three months, to be honest. Um, and for people that are interested, how can they support the work of Action for Afghanistan? Yeah, so you can visit actionforafghanistan.com.au. Um, our website's got quite a vast range of resources. It talks about who we are and what our asks are and how you can get involved. There's, a, you know, there are um, different ways. Uh, currently, right now, we're doing a second national week of action where every day of the week we're um, focusing on a particular ask and bringing different voices together, um, you know, campaigning on this. But uh, um, once the week of actions over. There are also many other ways people can get involved. So, you know, the content, um, the resources are on our website and we ask people to um, write to their MPs to keep bringing this up, um, this issue. Um, unfortunately, as the media span um, fades away, you know, the attention fades away in the media, so does yeah. the attention in, um, in political levels. So we do want to keep this issue um, at the forefront of our leaders minds so if people can write to their MPs, people can write or call um, the Immigration Minister Alex Hawke um, or even the Prime Minister's office um, to, to keep talking about this. 
to, to keep reminding them that there is a, a growing support in the community for more action um, for the bare minimum that Australian government should be doing right now. Yeah, you can and... follow us on social media as well, Action for Afghanistan, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Um, we regularly do updates um, of what's happening, where the campaign's up to, and how people can get involved. Yeah, no, thanks so much for that, Shabnam, and thank you for joining us this morning to talk a bit more about the work that you all do through Action for Afghanistan. Thank you, Malika. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just heard from Shabnam from Action for Afghanistan, um, who spoke to us about the continued crisis in Afghanistan and the impacts on the Afghan community here in so-called Australia. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and uh, we're about to go to an interview. And this is a replay of a chat that I had with Samantha Floriani, who's the program lead at Digital Rights Watch, about the basic online safety expectations on 14th October, which we're replaying now because the public consultation on the draft expectations closed this Friday, the 12th of November. 
And now we're going to be joined by Samantha Floriani, who's a program lead at Digital Rights Watch. And Samantha joins us to speak about the basic online safety expectations, which fall under the Online Safety Act and provide the minister with broad discretion to define parameters for digital safety and content restrictions on social media and other online services. Hey, Samantha, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, absolute pleasure. I think, um, you know, the, the the basic description I gave just then was pretty dense. So it's really good to have um, an expert come on to, to talk us through what's kind of going on with these online safety expectations. Um, so the Online Safety Bill 2021 passed in July, and there's been pretty widespread concern raised about the piece of legislation, um, including by sex workers. And listeners might remember that we have previously had Gallivanting from Scarlet Alliance on to speak on this. So could you give listeners a broad overview of the Act and its key aims before we get into the basic online safety expectations in particular? Yeah, absolutely. And and as you say, it's, it's a pretty dense area, there's a lot that is trying to be achieved within this one piece of legislation. And if people have been paying attention, there's there's been quite a lot of consultations happening simultaneously at the moment. So it's a pretty um it's a pretty hectic area at the moment. So the Online Safety Act um was introduced in December of twenty twenty, the so last year. And one of the things that really stood out at the time was just how fast, how how rushed the consultation process was. There was a lot of public concern, as you mentioned, from sex worker groups, from digital rights groups, from um, all kinds of uh, communities made submissions, over 300 submissions onto the Act, which is a lot. Um, and then it, it just it went on to pass with very minimal changes. Uh, so that in itself is a concern. But the legislation itself seeks to do quite a lot at once. So it contains six key areas. So bear with me while I while I run through them. So there's a cyberbullying scheme, which is to remove harmful content to children, a cyber abuse scheme to remove material that's harmful to adults. Then there's the image based abuse scheme, which adds more powers to to a scheme that already existed, which was all about removing intimate images that have been shared without consent. There's an online content scheme, which is essentially a, a scheme to, for the broad removal of content through takedown powers and removal notices. Um, there is an abhorrent violent material blocking scheme to block websites if they host violent content. And then there's the basic online safety expectations, which kind of ties it all together. Um, so obviously that there's quite a lot in there. And, and I think the scope of this is much bigger than people might realize. So it covers um, social media services, uh, designated, uh, I can't remember the, 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 I can't remember the technical wording off the top of my head now, but it covers social media services, obviously a big one, but mm-hmm. it also covers things like um, email and instant messaging and SMS. So your mm. personal communications could be swept up in there. Yeah. But one thing I want to like, highlight just straight off the bat is that not all of it is bad. And I want to make it really clear that like these issue, issues like, um, you know, abuse and harassment and sharing of intimate images without consent online are, are really important issues that do need to be tackled. The problem is, is that this bill contains really, sorry, not, it's not a bill, it's an act <laughs> now, it's passed, contains really broad and vague powers, um, which 
can bring up all kinds of additional harms. And what I make it really was pushing to try to make it so that in the quest to reduce harm, we don't create more harm. But unfortunately, it passed as it is. Yeah. And I think this is this is definitely the thing, right? Like we we're all, you know, trying to to fight for for better, you know, better being able to exercise our digital rights online, including the right not to be harassed and violated online. But at the same time, having these kinds of blanket measures, um, yeah, really raise the risk of compromising um, the ways that we interact online instead. So. Um, the basic online safety expectations, um, as you've mentioned, is one, just one part of this act. Um, it falls under Section 4, and they're to be defined by the relevant minister by legislative instrument. Um, so what are some of your concerns about the scope and application of ministerial authority when it comes to setting and enforcing these expectations for social media providers? And I think the other one was basically just designated online services, which is quite broad. Yeah, it's that's that is that's the word, and you're right. It's too early for my brain to <laughs> click in <laughs> to legislation talk. Um, yes, it's super broad. So the draft basic online safety expectations is a determination, as, as I think you mentioned. So that essentially what that means is that it is um, determined by the minister, and there's no voting on it in parliament. Um, so that can raise some questions around accountability and around the process of, of defining these expectations. Um, to be fair, there is a public consultation happening at the moment, and in the legislation it does say that there needs to be some form of um, public consultation if there were to be any changes made. So that, you know, in fairness, <laughs> in fairness and credit where credit's due, that is in there. Mm-hmm. We would like to see more... Um, more, a more clear uh, commitment to accountability when de- determining these um, expectations because they can, yeah, as I said, they can be changed pretty much whenever the minister might might decide to do it. Now, again, to be fair, there are some circumstances, given that this is, we're talking about in the digital space and technology changes really quickly, there is some need to be flexible so we can appreciate why maybe that was part of the the um, approach, but at the same time, these expectations, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute, have quite, you know, have the potential to be quite, uh, <laughs> to cause to cause quite a lot of issues. And so we really do need to have that consultation process for, for affected communities and digital rights groups and other human rights groups to be able to have their say on it so that they, so that we can get the balance right, because really we want we want online safety to be improved. Everyone wants that to happen, right? I don't think you'd find many people working in this space who are, you know, campaigning against improving mm-hmm. safety. But if we don't get the balance right, then, as I said, we'll just cause more harm, more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. And just... um on a bit of a side note, um, before we get into the next question, I just wanted to mention the fact that, um, you know, around this legislative instrument mechanism, um, that concern really is that, you know, when particular pieces of legislation go through and there are areas that can be uh, defined by the minister via legislative instrument, as you mentioned, they're not subject to parliamentary scrutiny. And I know that um, the Senate Standing Community, uh, sorry, the Senate Standing Committee for the Scrutiny of Delegated Legislation actually had an inquiry into the exemption of delegated 
highlighted legislation from parliamentary oversight last year and released a report early this year. So this is something that's happening across the board and definitely something to be aware of across a whole range of, of legislation that's passing, just the ability for the relevant minister to um, make a lot of decisions that, yeah, are not um, that are not subject to that kind of scrutiny and don't need to be voted on. Um, so moving back to uh, the expectations, how do you anticipate that service providers are going to be uh, responding to the basic online safety expectations um, once they are you know, put in place by the minister and who's going to be most affected? And uh, what consequences do you foresee for the most marginalized um, online service users? Yeah, great. That's, I, that's a huge question. Um, the first, but first, I, I might just highlight a couple of the things that are in the expectations, and then we'll go into sure. um, why we're concerned. So, the the expectations list um, core expectations and additional expectations, and like there's a lot in there. So I'll just pick out um, sort of the the key ones, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. they're all about getting. Um, providers of services to take reasonable steps. So reasonable steps to minimise harm, reasonable steps to um, ensure end users are able to use their service in a safe manner. They're expected to consult with a safety commissioner and they're expected to take steps um, to remove certain kinds of material, included, including material that's considered to be bullying, abuse, um, again, those non-consensual intimate images, class one and class two material, which um, is essentially anything that would be or could be classified as R18 plus or above in the, the National Classification Code, which is a, a whole other conversation there about how we determine what is and isn't offensive and what isn't isn't harmful, which is a really tricky um, mm-hmm. and complicated and nuanced area, and that in and of itself is, is something to consider. Um, And the expectations also require providers, um, essentially they they push providers to uh, undermine their encryption to be able to, to, you know, unmask who is using their services and who is sharing what sort of content and things like that. And also they push them to prevent or to minimize people using anonymous anonymous accounts. Mm -hmm. So there's there's quite a lot in those expectations. So in terms of the concerns and the, you know, the possible impacts um, and uh, the the way that service providers might might respond to these expectations, there are three key concerns in in my mind, um, and that is the, the undermining of encryption, which you know, encryption, I'll get into it in a little bit more detail, but encryption is essential to our digital security. So any any move to undermine it undermines the safety of all of us. So it's kind of counterintuitive to the entire goal of the, mm-hmm. of the act, in my mind. Um, the second is preventing people from using uh, services anonymously, uh, using services anonymously is, is really important. Um, and the third is that it will incentivize uh, companies to move even more towards things like automated content moderation. Mm. So, you know, one of the key concerns that we raised when this was initially proposed in the bill before it passed was that the expectations essentially um, they incentivize proactive monitoring and removal of content that may fall under class one or class two material. 
But given that, you know, the scale of the content that these platforms have to deal with, we would anticipate that they will turn more to toward automated content moderation and detecting processes than they already currently do. So this means using things like machine learning and other techniques to figure out what kind of content is or is not mm. harmful so that they can avoid, um, you know, getting caught up in, in um you know, getting in trouble with the safety commissioner, essentially. And so the trouble is that we already know that automated content moderation results in disproportionate removal of Indigenous people, Black people, fat people, disabled people, queer, and, of course, sex worker content. And so, you know, that stands to sort of exacerbate the um, kind of inequality and the kind of harm in real life also but you know, and translate them to, to online spaces. So that's a real mm. concern. Um, I mean, in 2018, <clears throat> Mark Zuckerberg said that it's easier to, t- to detect a nipple than to detect hate speech with AI, which I think for a lot of people who are online will have seen this essentially that, you know, women and non-binary people and, and trans people will have their, their content removed really, really quickly, and all the while, you know, you can see someone else posting awful sexist and racist comments, and they seem to get away with it. Yeah, absolutely, (sighs) and definitely... Um, you know, something, something for listeners to, to be, um, constantly mindful of is, you know, these machine learning and automated, uh, processes, you know, they are coded with the biases of the people that, you know, train these algorithms. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not something that's like, you know, completely neutral of biases that already exist in Absolutely. society. Um, oh, so. And race comes yeah. in, well, I was just going to highlight that race race comes into it a lot like you will often see as an example like a lot of this stuff is around sexual content so let's keep it in that sort of realm you'll often see on social media platforms that you know thin white cisgendered women are able to be pretty you know pretty nude online but you know um black women and um women with darker skin tones get removed really really Mm -hmm. quickly and so there is that racial bias as well which is Super harmful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just briefly, do you see any potential interactions between the Online Safety Act and the Identify and Disrupt Act? Because we've been thinking about this lately as well. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on government encroachment on digital rights and privacy across the board, including, you know, referring back to that discussion about encryption and anonymity. Yeah, well, I think they all sort of start to fit together in an, like an overarching encroachment on digital rights and just it signals just how much the government is willing to sacrifice things like privacy and security in the pursuit of other, you know, political agendas. This, you know, online safety, this has been a huge point scoring exercise the government it you know because it sounds it sounds really good on face value right it sounds it sounds like they're protecting you know women and children they're, they're fighting the good fight and but the trouble is is that that narrative kind of obfuscates all of the detail that's happening underneath that is quietly eroding um rights and quietly eroding our you know our ability to be safe and secure online mm-hmm. and and as you've highlighted, a lot of, you know, a lot of marginalized groups as well. So I, 
that is that is super it's frustrating and mm-hmm. the problem is as well is that we are seeing um you know in the uk they are having very very similar conversations about online safety and looking at very similar approaches and they they turn to us and they see what we've passed and see it as like oh well you know another jurisdiction has passed this legislation mm-hmm. so we'll take that as inspiration and that's i mean in 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 my opinion that's terrible outcome because we are leading the way in a sense but it's in a bad direction yeah so when you combine the online safety act with the identify and disrupt act you know we're we're creating quite a a complex and sophisticated um and widespread sort of network of powers to for surveillance powers to monitor and control how we are able to um, be online, how we're able to communicate with each mm. other, and how those that kind of information can be used um, either against us or to silence us. It's it's quite alarming, and I think when you look when you zoom out even further, and we look at things like the news media bargaining code and all the work that's happening in um, digital identity mm-hmm. and facial recognition, it all starts to piece together. Yeah, this very alarming landscape of um, encroachments on digital rights. Yeah, definitely. Um, and really appreciate you drawing it all out. Um, so just to just to wrap up, where can listeners find out more about the basic online safety expectations? Because was, it was a lot of information and um, you, yeah. you laid it out really well, but I'm sure people uh, will probably want to learn a bit more and also how to make a last minute submission to that public consultations and also about the work of Digital Rights Watch. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, our website, um, digitalrightswatch.org.au is where we will, you know, we always post things like explainers and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll post our submissions so people can have a look. Um, if you follow us on social media as well, that's probably a bit more like on the fly. We'll often post um, things on social media to keep people up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the basic online safety expectations, thankfully that public consultation has actually just been extended. So now the deadline is the 12th of November. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, so there's a bit more time. If people are interested, I definitely encourage them to get involved and make a submission. That process can be a little bit daunting. I totally get it. I have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we recently just held a... Um, an online workshop on how to write your own policy submissions. We did that in partnership with Electronic Frontiers Australia. Mm-hmm. So that's on YouTube, um, which you can find, you know, via social media or just Google it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that is a sort of that people through kind of tips and tricks of what to look for, how to craft your own submission. So it kind of, yeah, it's, it's a handy guide for anyone who is interested, but, is not sure where to start. Awesome. Um, we will continue to post, you know, more is, of, around the safety expectations in particular to sort of give people a bit more of a sense so people can watch out for that. Yeah. And then lastly, I would just like to, you started with it, but just like to re-up the work that um, Scarlet Alliance has been doing in this space. Um, they're also really worth following to to sort of understand um, their perspectives on it as well, which which aligns with what I've been saying about digital rights as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Samantha, for taking the time to, to talk us through this complex topic and um, really good to hear the consultations being extended. So encourage people to get involved. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. 
And that was a conversation that I had with Samantha Floriani, who's the program lead at Digital Rights Watch on the 14th of October about the basic online safety expectations. And again, you can find more information about how to make a submission because submissions for public consultation close this Friday, the 12th of November at digitalrightswatch.org.au. And since we had that chat, um, Digital Rights Watch has also published their own submission on there as well as a guide for how to submit if you want to. And now we're going to go to a track. This is Carafe off Teether and Kuya Neal's new mixtape, Glyph. Sure, but also has solvent. Muddled mind talk, sorry, I don't mean to hold ya. Muzzle tight jaw, hit my walk like soldier. The might strike over, cause what's your problem? Second door, open my corpse, don't wanna. Burning for heaters till it's put like lobster. Man out of oil, shit is stolen extra body. Get it how you butter, tightening in the shutter. Chopping in my knife for the bread and the butter. Rolling up the shutters. Like rubber and I'm burning out Sat around the house with my lover Emptied out the money count Almost missed the buzzer Dreaming about my teeth Falling out in the gutter Passing the retreat On the street undercover Yeah, too hungry to eat Set asleep for a slumber Careful what you mean How you speak on the chester I've been in the same spot Sipping on nectar Careful what you mean How you speak on the chester I've been in the same spot Sipping on nectar Yeah Got approached, one under the shellfish There it goes, leading with my helmet Kept it close, drowning out the elbows Cantaloupe, raining like it's clouded Boy, I'm really bout it Louder than alarm bells, I can hear my heart Told him it's a dark smoke, coming from the car Quieter than Parkville, muzzled on the box Buckled like a seatbelt, crashing through the block Wouldn't know I sneak well, I already fought Costumes to leave though, setting on my park Only way I sleep well, drinking from Karak Posted in a deep row, reminiscing parts Go ahead And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Carafe by Teether and Kuya Neal off their new mixtape, Glyph, which you can find um, on Bandcamp. But they also have an awesome new website that they launched, which, um, yeah, features the mixtape and some classic Windows Media Player visualization. So I encourage people to check that out. 
Uh, but you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.11 in the morning. And we are joined now by artist and writer Matt Chun, who is joining us to speak about his new self-published picture book, Do You Ever Wonder?, and some of the processes and politics of creating against colonization in the literary sphere in so-called Australia. So welcome, Matt. Hey, thank you so much. This is really lovely. Yeah, I'm really excited to to talk to you about this book. Um, I've already hyped it up heaps in the introduction. But um, before we jump into this, can you um, self-introduce in a little bit more detail and tell us how you got into illustration and writing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Well, I'm an artist and writer. Um, I'm speaking to you from Ewanland, where I live. Um, Yeah, I'm just up on the headlands now watching dolphins in the bay. It's a beautiful morning. Um, And... Yeah, I think, like, drawing is something that I've always done, you know, from childhood. It's my earliest memory. So there's no, uh, I guess, particular um, crucial moment. But in terms of publishing, um, yeah, I was approached by a commissioning editor about five years ago. Um, she'd come across my work and asked me to make a picture book, which was, yeah, a process that I just really enjoyed, so we kept doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of fell sideways into the world of books, I guess, um, yeah, I wish I had a more interesting origin story, but that's it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, it makes sense that you've been creating forever, but it it also is just amazing how well your art has translated into into this form because, um, you know, having having looked, in, in particular, like one, one of your books that I've looked at is the collaboration with Amy McGuire at Daybreak. And it's just, it's just really beautiful, like looking at, yeah, the, the, the sort of um, visual storytelling that you're able to do. Um, and, you yeah, know, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, that's why you're, that's why you're here today, because you've, um, you've published your newest <coughs> picture book, Do You Ever Wonder? And that was self-published this month. And I was really struck by some of the visual reflections and also the truth-telling that you engage in in the book. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the process of creating the work? You know, why did you choose the, the vignettes that you, that you include in the book and why now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, do you ever wonder? Um, it's really just like a, a little compilation of words and picture sequences, um, I guess, extracted from my sketchbooks during 2020. Um, and yeah, last year I was in COVID lockdown in Vancouver um, for most of that year. And, you know, extremely fortunate and privileged to be comfortable and busy with some great projects. But um, yeah, I, I did have a lot of time to fill sketchbooks. And because I'd been working I guess, within the picture book world for a few years, I was just thinking about and, and uh, you know, experimenting with that as a form. And I think there's something really um, kind of disarming maybe about taking that kind of simple palette of words and pictures um, and using these kind of soft, gentle watercolours to confront horrifying subjects like, you know, colonialism, uh, policing, military, um, you know, it's, it's all empire, right? Mm. So I, I think having published with a publisher um, over the last few years, I was really just curious about the process of self-publishing. You know, it, um, maybe it seems like a step backwards, but I was just really excited by um, self-publishing as a kind of, you know, way into this sort of unfiltered uh, solo project. Um, so truth-telling, yeah, I, I guess that's something that as uh, a settler I definitely see as an obligation, right? Um and particularly as someone who makes objects for people to look at. Um, and I don't always get it right, but I've been thinking about the fact that everything, you know, settlers do on stolen land 
um, is inherently political, right? So, like, every time we speak, um, even if this conversation was just about the weather or something, that's kind of political speech. Um, and as an artist, you know, I can step outside and draw something, um, you know, maybe seemingly apolitical, like a tree or a landscape, um, but within the framework of empire, you know, in an ongoing colony on stolen land. Um, even those kind of innocuous subjects, I think, are inherently political. So that's kind of the imperative, right? Um, and I think there's there's probably a range of solutions to that. But for me personally, um, I think the solution is just to name things um, and to be as articulate as possible about what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, the the, the process of, of creating art... Um you know, in, in a in a settler colonial context, you're you're capturing images on a page and presenting them in a decontextualized kind of manner sort of abstracts you away from responsibility with engaging with these things and that's clearly mm-hmm. something that you're pushing back against in um in Do You Ever Wonder? And um I really loved the segment Imagine uh, Imagine <clears throat> Desecrations. I mean I loved all mm-hmm. of them, but this one in particular <laughs> with the way that you've used um, a series of sketches of uh, police defending the Captain Cook statue in Sydney's Hyde Park during the Black Lives Matter rallies uh, to present a creative dismantling of colonial symbolism. Um, and I was wondering what role you see for art in getting audiences to engage in tangible challenges to settler colonialism, because there's this aesthetic side, but also mm-hmm. it's definitely very clearly linked to a practice of um, anti-colonialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look, I have to give a shout-out to the online platform Runway Journal. Um, That's where that sequence you're talking about was first published. Um, And you're probably familiar with them. They're a great platform, and they release issues, I guess, of writing about art and art about art. So I've written for them a couple of times, um, you know, about public monuments and the way that Empire, uh, you know, I guess inserts itself into public space. Um, Yeah, so imagine desecrations. Yeah, that was made during... Um, the Black Lives Matter protest in Hyde Park. Um, and, you know, following that horrific murder of George Floyd, you'll remember there was this kind of energy around toppling and defacing monuments through um, the American continent and in Europe too. Um, there was that amazing footage of um, John Colston being thrown into the sea. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, that moment when the cops were deployed to surround James Cook um, in Hyde Park, uh, it was just such a clear sort of reassertion of white supremacism, right, and the colonial, um, I guess, occupation of public space. And this, you know, this sort of posture that nothing like that would ever happen here um, in so-called Australia. Um, you know, and then Scott Morrison was out there making the argument that Australia is, like, in some way, you know, distinct from the U.S., you know, that we don't have police violence, that we never had slavery, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, look, I'm, I'm honestly... Uh, I try to be careful not to overstate the power of art. You know, I think art can be a valuable um, reflection of society. It, it's, you know, obviously the way that I communicate, it's, it's a, um, a useful tool for me. Um, and I think it can change people's minds. But in terms of being like an agent of change, um, I'm just wary that, you know, artists, uh, we often give ourselves too much credit. <laughs> so, like, I really see myself as playing a supporting role, right? Um, particularly uh, in support of, um, you know, activists who are on the street, particularly Indigenous activists who are doing the real work. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, and, and when you when you think about um, art that does try to be sort of cringily, um, you know, substituting actual like physical political action um, mm. in terms of things like, you know, there's there's um, there's we are Australian or I'm Australian um, posters that sort of mm. were put up around um, around NARM. Um, for example, where it's like, okay, like there's, there's a political statement in there, but at the same time, it's, it becomes sort of for consumption rather than mm-hmm. a provocation mm-hmm. to action. Um, so I appreciate yeah. Yeah, your reflections. No, no, that, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, and I, I'm not saying that I always get it right, but, you know, that we do have to consider all those things, you know, like how we, how we aestheticize um, a political subject, for example, like you, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Um, turning to to the um, question of self-publishing, which I know is um, an interesting thing for for you to explore, as you uh, mentioned earlier, but I would say at least uh, four out of the five segments in the book might have gotten you into some difficult conversations with most publishers. Um, <laughs> you know, in terms of is nothing sacred anymore? The police, the yeah. Anzacs, um, and it is <clears throat> it it happens to be a Remembrance Day today. Um, so I know that you've been speaking up for some time about colonialism and uh, issues with this in the Australian publishing industry, particularly when it comes to organizations who are progressive except for Palestine. So could you speak to some of your experiences of the political landscape mm-hmm. of publishing here when you're creating work or, you know, when others are creating work that actively challenges colonialism? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think that Palestine is the clearest of moral lines, right? Um, and obviously there are too many Australian publishers uh, on the wrong side of that issue. Um, you know, and, and I, I think, like, the fact that these aggressively kind of anti-Palestinian platforms, like, um, you know, the Saturday Paper and Black Ink Book, have, you know, managed to ingratiate themselves into progressive spaces. Um, and I think are generally understood here to be a good alternative, you know. Um, it's just really an indictment on Australian media in general, you know, not just publishing. Um, and I think Palestine is particularly important for all of us because, you know, all the things that we should care about on the left, they're really kind of condensed and exemplified um, within the movement for Palestine. So it's a great litmus test for progressivism and really exposes the authenticity of, um, you know, an organization's kind of pretense for solidarity. So, yeah, that's, um, you know, if if you want to sort of test how genuine an organization's progressivism is, I think just say, um, say the word Palestine. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and like see if their pupils dilate, right? Yeah. But obviously, um yeah, like even even less insidious publishers um are still operating within a framework of capitalism, right? So there's always gonna be a degree of compromise. Um and you know, nobody can claim to be morally absolute when working within that framework. It's it's um it's really a case by case uh kind of exploration. But, you know, having said that, the people I do work with within publishing are genuinely progressive and they're genuine allies. So self-publishing is no shade to the people that I've worked with. I find those relationships really um, valuable and enriching. Um, and you mentioned Daybreak, right, with Amy McGuire. Mm-hmm. So that was a book made with a publisher and was really, um, yeah, really uncompromising in the way that it critiqued Australia Day and Anzac Day. Um, and I'm really impressed with my publisher for getting that one to print. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, you're absolutely right. Like when I work with a publisher, 
an idea needs to be approved by an acquisitions team and um, I guess needs to be approved as like safely marketable, right? Um, and I will keep working within that world, but I'm interested in, in slowly kind of putting together maybe a little series of self-published books as a side project because, yeah, there's just like so much seditious potential in, in that kind of um, complete <laughs> lack of oversight. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's also just an enjoyable process, right? Like it, it's, it's challenging doing everything myself and honestly, like really has taught me to appreciate the amazing work that my regular editor and my designer um, have done for me in the past. Yeah, but it's also, um, you know, one of those incredibly powerful ways to kind of break through a lot of, because a lot of what we see, especially with more progressive um, organizations that are progressive except for Palestine, is not necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, um, the demonization of, of Palestinians as we see in, in a lot of mainstream media, but it's just the silence. And I think... You know, Absolutely. Breaking yeah. through those silences, you know, in some in some instances through self-publishing, in some instances through, you know, pushing media organizations to actively engage with these is, is so is such an important part of this. And I and I know that right now there's a process going on with the, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival where, yeah. you know, that just thinking about creative spaces where these conversations are happening right now. Um, so, you know, looking towards wrapping up. Um, I just wanted to know who you are reading right now and whose work inspires and challenges you both inside and outside the literary sphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mostly I'm, I read comics. <laughs> at the moment. Nice. So my 10-year-old son and I um, have, uh, you know, it's been our sort of biggest expense over lockdown is, is collecting comics. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just like a really complex and experimental and I think genuinely radical form in, in a way that, I think the fine art world often, um, you know, can fail to be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm really, really enjoying growing my comics collection um, yeah, for the sake of, um, uh, you know, w watching the time. I'll give a shout-out to Lee Lai. Um, have you read? Oh, uh, Lee's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's one that I've really enjoyed. You know, just this really gorgeous storytelling and this kind of, um, you know, subtle, uh, like, excavation of a relationship. Just really well done. Um, in terms of who inspires and challenges me, I mean, you've mentioned Amy Maguire, so I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just give a shout out to Amy's Substack, um, called Presence. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've talked about the limitations of, um, journalism. And I think, you know, one real solution is following independent journalists. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely point people towards that. Um, also, um, you know, just because I've been watching her book launch um, vicariously through social media, mm -hmm. um, Chelsea Wadigo, who I, I think you've mentioned before, right? Yeah, she's uh, on your show. She's just amazing. And another day in the colony is—it's a must-read. Yeah, that, that's uh, you know, Chelsea's someone who um, I, I find really challenging and enriching, um, particularly in her writing um, on you know black power and joy. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I could go on. <laughs> There's so many inspiring people. No, but that is that is a great start. And um, thank you so much for, you know, speaking with us about, about your process of creating, about these really important conversations in publishing. And just to finish up, where can people grab a copy of Do You Ever Wonder? Oh, yeah, look, well, so the best place is from my website. That's M-A-T-T-C-H-U-N, um, matchun.com. Um, you can connect with me on Instagram, of course, 
Um, and yeah, that's where I, I kind of talk about my process and, uh, and talk about new projects. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's been a joy to speak to you and all the best with getting the book out into the world. Thank you so much. Lovely talking to you. And that was an interview with Matt Chun, who's an artist and writer, who joined us to speak about his new self-published picture book, Do You Ever Wonder?, and processes and politics of creating against colonization in the literary sphere in so-called Australia. Um, We're coming up to the end of the show now, so we might do a very quick rundown before before we leave you for this week. Do you want to kick it off? Yeah, um, at the start, we were listening to Monday's episode of Women on the Line, where Iris interviewed Dylan O'Hara from Victoria's peer sex worker organization, Vixen Collective, on the benefits of full decriminalization of sex work and how sex work dis- and how the sex work de- decriminalization bill 2021, which is currently before Victorian Parliament, leaves some sex workers behind. You can listen back to the whole episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line and find out how to support the push for amendments to the bill by visiting the No Sex Worker Left Behind campaign on bixencollective.org. We're then going to be speaking with Shabnam from Action for Afghanistan. Uh, sorry, we then spoke with Shabnam for Action for Afghanistan on the continued crisis in Afghanistan and the impacts on the Afghan community here in so-called Australia. Yep, and then we spoke to, um, we replayed, sorry, Samantha Florini's uh, Digital Rights Watch program. And that was, she's the program leader on Digital Rights Watch about the basic online safety expectations, which all fall under the Online Safety Act and provide the minister with broad discretion to define the parameters of digital safety and content restrictions on social media and other services. And we replayed this today um, as a public consultation on the draft expectations as they close on Friday the 12th of November. And you can have your say by heading to infrastructure.gov.au and looking up the public consultation on the draft. Cool. And um, Digital Rights Watch also has a guide for how to submit on their website. Um, and, yeah, really, really useful there. And finally, we spoke to artist and writer Matt Chun about his new book, Do You Ever Wonder?, which you can grab from his website. So we'll catch you next week on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.